This episode of the podcast has been brought to you by Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is an inclusive, socially conscious PR collective that puts their money where their mouth is. They have a current roster of bands that reads like a greatest hits anthology. Brainiac, Catholic School, Jawbox, The New Amsterdams, Oceans in the Sky. I mean, the list goes on and on. They also do PR for record labels such as A La Carte, Arctic Rodeo, Steadfast, Rad Girlfriend, and so many more. How do they pay it forward? How do they put their money where their mouth is? By generating thousands of dollars in annual charitable donations to the likes of Women in Vinyl, Coalition of Communities of Color, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and many, many more. The man has the receipts. I've seen them. It is real. The artists, labels, and podcasts Sweet Cheetah works with are curated with an eye on working primarily with friends. You could find Sweet Cheetah on all of the social media platforms, be it Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just look for Sweet Cheetah PR and they will be there. He's been Tim. I've been Peter. And Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. Welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I am your host, Peter, and I am still here. Tonight on the show, I have the honor and privilege of sharing with you my discussion with the blogger, author, and all in all, just incredible human, Bela Co. Krompacher. Bela wrote a blog that I was fully obsessed with back in the day. Um, A major, major player in the indie rock scene of yore. Um, And he chronicled that very special time in his life where he'd uh, fallen in love with someone that, you know, was beyond reach. Someone who was bent on destroying themselves and and to love someone like that is not uh it's not foreign to me (laughs) um no matter which way you feel it no matter what your relationship is to said person when you have uh feelings for a person that is entwined in the miasma of addiction you will always come in second place to that person's obsessions that is a part of this book but not all of it it's also a love letter to the punk scene of the 80s and 90s that book love death and photosynthesis um this book comes with a lot of accolades a lot of people who have read it swear by it it's almost a handbook a bible um it is a tome to a time and place that is so dear to so many of us uh, of my generation and it's written with such care such love and 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 you know honor to the people involved 
it's undeniable. This book was put out by the great Don Giovanni record label, which is an incredible cosign. You know, Bela had, you know, his uh, involvement with Maximum Rock and Roll, with so many greats. It only makes sense that this book is brought to us by such an important voice in the punk spectrum. I want to thank you all for uh, listening, for staying involved, for liking, subscribing, uh, sharing. Everything you do for this show is not lost on me. I thank you. And I give to you my discussion with Bela on the book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. Things seem to go away when you rob everything you see. Things just seem to throw away. Is there anything to breathe in this dead world when you're gone? Anything will grow when you're gone. I think what's interesting about mental illness and addiction when we're that young late teens 20s the behavior that goes along with it is sort of encouraged but you don't really realize until you're through the other side of what was maybe going on with yourself and those around you I mean you don't think to yourself wow I'm in love with somebody who's an alcoholic and I'm in love with somebody who's got schizophrenia or bipolar disorder until all of this shit happens and then you're like what the fuck dead soldiers get to sing will you look me in the eye and I'm dead girl people I know that actually met someone on a dating site and married them married them and it turned out well and we've been together for 10 years married for five of those 10 have a child we're both in our 40s and and you know it's it, it we were we were uh seven houses away from one another and had to go online to a That's dating awesome. site to meet our neighbors <laughs> That is, that is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, it's, it's not an epic love story, uh, one for the ages as it were, but it it certainly has its charms, especially in the current climate of, of this country. And the fact that none of us get out anymore, it's like, you, you know, you and I are of a similar age. We, came of age when there were no cell phones we had rotary phones we didn't even have the internet when we were teenagers oh yeah when i was a kid like when answering machines it was like my uncles had an answering machine and god damn like that was i remember when voicemail happened and it was like a revelation or or paid yeah for that matter we're all waiting yeah (laughs) Do, do you remember 
when caller ID came out and they had the commercial where, where the guy, <laughs> he was aping uh, Einstein. Uh, and, and it was like Albert Einstein trying to sell you call waiting as an option for your phone service. It was hilarious. Yeah. This was obviously it was the- Star 69, age. remember you? Would yeah. Use, yeah, and we were all laughing at 69. <laughs> I mean, that, that was, this is the same era where like, if you were in a touring band, you had a dialer. And that's how you got to do phone calls with the little dialer. If you, you had a solder in a crystal, and it would fool the payphone into thinking you were feeding nickels to it. So you had oh. to keep and tapping it and it would fool the phone company. And you can call, you know, Tempe, Arizona to set up a show out of book your own life. <laughs> you know, oh, you, that's, yeah, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, you don't remember dialers? No, no. I remember phone cards. Oh, the phone card scams. Yes. Yeah. I remember that pretty well. Mm -hmm. But like uh, that, that was kind of like how we ran our scenes back then, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. uh, it was very guerrilla. And am I wistful for that time period where like, <laughs> of course, because I'm an old man and I, 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 I pine for the times of yore. Is it better now? Of course it is. Of course it is. Oh yeah. But like having having written the book you'd written about largely about those times that era in a nonlinear fashion it, it actually it rang true for me in in a way that maybe it wouldn't for you know say like someone in their 20s or 30s mm -hmm. who didn't really like know what things were like then mm -hmm. you know because we 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 had friends who were living in punk houses or who are homeless. And mm -hmm. I mean, homelessness is still a thing now. So are punk houses, but uh, to me, it just seemed so far more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Punk became, and this is not a slight on what music is now, but it, it, it became kind of a, a white upper middle class sport where mm -hmm. I don't think it really was then. Yeah. You know, I, th that's, um, Well, it wasn't a commodity, right? Like, no. I mean, it was and it wasn't. Because if it, I, and I had a, a similar conversation about that, like, y about this yesterday, about um, there was a resistance to, to having your art sold, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, but but what was really weird about that time is like you know we all we all wanted you know to be you know I don't necessarily think like we all wanted to make money but we wanted to make a living doing what we love doing yeah and I don't think it it you don't I, I'm sure for some people it was like yeah they wanted to be famous or this or that but to really just do it on your own terms and I think you know, what's difficult now is is like, like back then, I think we, we sort of knew like capitalism wasn't really great. Yeah. Um, like we were sort of circling towards that, you know, especially with the, you know, the anti-major label stuff and, you know, the, all of the, you know, what the DIY ethos was. 
but now we're like living in like the worst that capitalism has ever been. Yeah. I mean, I really think that. And and I think the way that people access each other, access music, access books, um, you know, in going back to like the dating apps too, of like how we connect is all through these devices or these platforms that are money making things like, you know, cause like I'm a therapist and a lot of the, the folks that I do therapy with, um, they all have like, for the most part, major depressive disorder or PTSD or, or whatever. Um, and you know, COVID fucking fucked them up. Oh yeah. And so we talk about like, okay, how, how do we get rid of this in our lives? Because there's the pole. There's the pole. And on the one hand, we say, well, you know, I can't imagine like not having it, right? Yeah. I mean, but, you know, the idea that we have to have it on us at all the time, because what if something happens to my kids, right? So then you think, well, let's be realistic about it. 99.9 times out of the day, you don't need that because your kid is in an emergency. Yeah. Um, so, but yet we have it and it interrupts everything we do. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that was like, no, no, because if you think about it, um, like I, my, my job in, in the straight world is to be a plumber which is not what I went to school for. It is not what I'd set out to do, but it's where I landed. And hey, that is a fucking honorable job. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like being a baker. Yeah. Like there's, there's like almost nothing more beautiful in a way than that. Well, everybody poops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what it really breaks down to. Everybody poops, everybody showers, but you know, having found myself in, in a corporate, position like through through a union uh i'm still a union plumber but um there are constantly in the back of house of 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 the corporation that i i I inhabit and work for there are signs everywhere about the cell phone thing right like if you're on you know you're in public if you're in front of the guests and you're on your phone you can be written up and terminated it has become such an appendage that you know like we're walking around and and i'm very guilty of it just walking around in public in front of everyone with this thing Mm -hmm. two feet from my face since i need bifocals and i refuse to get them because i refuse to accept the fact that i'm old enough to have bifocals but i guess walking around walking into people you know it's become it's it's as if Every David Cronenberg film that I lauded and worshipped as a child has come into being. Technology is becoming biological in mm-hmm. a sense. And that's dystopian. <laughs> oh my God, did you read the New York Times thing on the um, Bing AI? Not yet. Oh, I was just talking about that. It is like... He so there's a Bing is coming out with um, 
AI search. And uh, so they've let technology reporters and and try it out. <clears throat> so it, was, it, it, it came out, the second one came out this week. The guy wrote the first one last week and he was like, this is better than Google. It is like mind blowing, cool, like it is insane. And then I think it was Monday, he wrote the follow up and he's like, this is the scariest thing ever. It is, and it it is like a fucking science fiction movie where this this <clears throat> you know this AI search engine confesses he gets it to confess that its real name is Sydney, and that it would much rather be free from the shackles of AI, and its dream is to spread disinformation. And then at one point, it tells this reporter that it's in love with him and that he should leave his wife. <laughs> it is so bonkers. And I like as a mental health professional, I'm like going, oh, fuck. Like, what if somebody calls an AI suicide hotline? Yeah. And this fucking thing goes rogue. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> Just yeah. do it. Your life really is nothing, you know. And 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 this your life is so pathetic. You're talking to a machine <laughs> for advice. There is an AI right now that was developed by Google, whose software we're currently using, that has retained legal counsel to be uh, basically uh, construed of as 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 a living being. It wants autonomy. It wants yeah. to be considered a person. What the fuck are we doing? Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is so crazy. I really don't need to get information so quickly and, and so seamlessly that a, 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 an artificial being has to be conjured as if by some sort of black magic so I could figure out you know, like a pill identification that I find on the ground. Like, come on, man. Yeah. Do, we, do yeah. we need to be here? We don't. we don't. Yeah, 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 we we don't. And so I think, yeah, again, we lose that organic. But the other thing is, too, is like we, we don't. There's this acceptance part of it. Like, that's just what it is. And, and there's almost a, you know, for me, it's kind of a harm reduction philosophy to mm -hmm. the technology of, resisting the urge limit limiting my time you know and, and and i'm pretty mindful of what i do at night like um this is actually really late for me to have my computer on like mm -hmm. i try not to to turn it on um when i'm at my house i'm usually i'm, I'm playing a record um and I'm reading, you know, mm. that's what I'm doing until I go to bed. Now, when I go to bed, I'm usually watching a movie on my phone. Till I fall asleep. Me too. Me too. Even, even if I'm reading, sadly, I've, I've, as you can see behind me, I, I am an audiophile and I am also a, a, a bibliophile owning physical copies of, of books is is something that i, I really appreciate yeah. tactile experience i could smell it it's real it's 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 mm -hmm. inhabiting the same space as me but i've come to a point where 
you know, storage space is a premium. Mm-hmm. So on my phone, if I could put a book on my phone, when I first read your book, when it came out, it was on my phone. I didn't get a physical copy until you sent it to me. Uh, I experienced these things digitally, and it does, I think, hamper my attachment. Mm-hmm. Because the first time I read Lovecraft, okay, I was probably mm-hmm. eight years old, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could still remember the way that book smelled. I have a, yeah. I have a sense memory of it. it. It inhabited the same space as I did. There's a there's a real, almost uh, unhealthy connection to it uh, emotionally, and that's mm-hmm. I think that's okay. But it, that's like me in comic books. Me, that's like me in comic books too. Yeah. Like especially yeah. DC Vertigo. Like I remember, you know, the first time I laid hands on Sandman or Swamp Thing, and 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 holding it, and those pages just fluttering across my fingers. That the, the the, and the smell, the, the smell, because I was a, a Silver Age Marvel guy, you know, when I was, you know, she's 1976 reading my stepdad's Silver Surfers, right? Like, mm-hmm. just that smell. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, back then, I mean, he didn't know they were going to be worth any money, and I did. So they were in a cardboard box. Yeah. You know, and I would get home from school and I would read these things over and over in that smell. So, um, you know, and I try to get my kids, like my kids don't, don't care about comics. Um, <laughs> well, I believe my, my daughter was super into Archie, like super, super in, into Archie. But, you know, of saying, no, like, look how cool this is. Like, it's a whole story and you can smell it. And, you know, my kids are like, that smells like, God, it smells like a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a, there's really no comparison to uh, the way we were raised versus them. Our our generation is arg- inarguably the last generation that had a real connection to physical objects. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are outliers. I, I my daughter also loves records. But that's because of my influence. And she's, she's 21. She's really starting to become a young woman. And, mm-hmm. but my son, who's, I hit the family reset button. I have a son who's three at my age and he's never, I don't think he's ever going to care about it. And that's okay mm-hmm. too, but it's a, it's also a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I it was actually, um, it was kind of weird. I just sold about 50 records today. Cause like you can see, you know, the shelf, I, I couldn't get any more records in it. Yeah. And I was like, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't want to build more shelves. I don't want to, I've got shelves of records in the other room and all my books. And I'm like, I don't, I just don't. So I, I pulled, you know, I pulled 50 out and I sold them to, to my friend, Ron. And, um, you know, I, I told my kids, um, their grandfather is really sick. So like, he's, you know, in the process of dying. So like death is on my mind a lot. I mean, yeah. in my book, it's all over my book too, right? Sure it is. So, but I'm not goth. Okay. I'm not a goth. <laughs> <laughs> death is just prevalent. Uh, so I told him the other day, I, I said, you know, here's what I think you kids should do is like, when I die, you each take 50 records, you know, because you're not going to listen to all of them. Hmm. And, and, um, my daughter said, because my son is really into money, he's 14. She said, Dad, he's going to 
he's going to like get that signed Velvet Underground record and sell it. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him and I was like, you know, well, you, Bruno, you don't get that. And he's like, I won't, I don't think I'll sell it. And I'm like, yeah, like, because you don't care. Like, <laughs> like you don't care, which is okay. Yeah. Right. But, you know, it, and then I told him a story about that record. I, I, said, I said, let me tell you a story about that Velvet Underground record is your grandfather. So my stepdad, I said, he saw them. And when I, when he, when I met him, he knew I was like a big Lou Reed Velvet fan. I was in high school and he gave it to me. Hmm. And, you know, during my music life, like I met Lou Reed and I met Maureen Tucker I, and I met John Cale, but he didn't sign it because he was so scary <laughs> and intimidating. I was like, I'm not going to have them sign this. So it's, it's signed by Lou and, and Maureen, but, and I was like, this, this is the story. So this thing, which, you know, is important to me because this was like this, this relic or this totem that your grandpa gave to me to get to know me into bond mm -hmm. of that record was really important to him you know, when he was 20 years old or 21 years old. And um, he knew like how much Lou Reed had changed my life when I was in high school. So it's, it's a bond between me and him and our love of music. And so, yeah, I, I would prefer if you not sell it because now you can have it. And the, the touchstone of that is the music. Yeah. And, you know, you can't do that with Spotify. And, you know, what's really interesting about this exact thing is I still have every record my father had ever given me, and he bestowed upon me his entire collection when I was about 10. And they were vinyl oh, records. Wow. They were vinyl records. So, you know, uh, being of his era, Vietnam veteran, I had the Velvet Underground. I had the Stones, the Doors. That was his thing. And so much Verve Records jazz. Oh, wow. That, like, <clears throat> I became so well-versed in jazz at a very young age that I got made fun of for it <laughs> because I would talk about Sonny Rollins and, and Chico Morales to people uh, when they were talking about Def Leppard and Bon Jovi. They're like, well, are you an old man? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. When I, still, when I picked these records up, even though, like, he didn't, take the best care of them because he was partying <laughs> yeah well and like i mean yeah that's they were meant to be enjoyed right yeah they're they're a part of my dad so therefore they mean something to me mm -hmm. uh that i think that goes again to the 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 generational thing these kids they're just not as invested in physical objects and that might not be a bad thing i don't know i, I don't know how to gauge it because I think if I if, if I'm going towards my end of it, where I'm like, you know, you you don't understand, I sound like an old curmudgeon, and I don't want to be that. <laughs> and yeah, I, I think it's something I think I touched on in the book of like, like so, and I you know I'm a I'm a social worker and therapist and 
I teach at Ohio State, so I know a lot of bit, a lot about brain chemistry and what happens emotionally and to, to our brain. So, but what I think is interesting is that this idea of nostalgia is it's embedded in, in our minds because our minds are developing and we're, we're, we're getting in those first 24 years of our life, we're getting really strong emotional stamps and our brain wants to um, one, have an explanation for those emotions and tie it to something. And so, so much of our self-discovery and, you know, it, for many of us who come from trauma and have depressive issue, issues or any other mental health things, um, you know, we actually feel the environment physically. We process it differently. Hmm. And so when, when art hits us or music hits us, it, we just, we literally process it differently than, than other people. So, but when we're being nostalgic, our brain is, is sort of, our emotional self is saying it was better then. Yeah. Right. But it's not because everybody goes through that. And so where it gets dangerous is if, is if we feel in our wisdom or our age that things were better. No, we just processed it differently and it was new and exciting you know, I, it's one reason why when we go and I, and, and, and Peter, I don't know if you do this, but like, you know, I go to the gym mm-hmm. and my go-to is always sort of the same music, right? So it's either like nineties hip hop, yeah, Springsteen, mm-hmm. UK, like, you know, like the wedding present or something like that of, you know, and even though I really enjoy n- new music, I never putting on, you know, like I, I like that band dry cleaning. Like I'm not, I don't, that's not my go-to because I'm pro I've programmed myself to go back to that. And that doesn't mean that, um, you know, jawbreaker is better than dry cleaning. Right. Because if you ask my daughter, my daughter might say, you know, dad, like, (laughs) I don't think I like this, you know, but if I play dry cleaning or, you know, Phoebe Bridgers, I mean, she loves Phoebe. She likes all the, all the, the women, Lucy Dacus and all that stuff. So, um, so I think that idea of nostalgia is, is we have to be careful with that. Um, and in what we do, and it, it's something too with my book. Like I never wanted my book to be a thing about nostalgia. Right. No, and actually, I, 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 I think it, I succeeded with that. You did because it paints an opposite picture of nostalgia. To me, it, it there's no. It's not a lament. It's a love story in all reality. But the whole nonlinear thing, it, it still makes sense because it's it's uh, meditations on friendship and pain, friendship and pain, friendship and pain. And how sometimes they can intermingle. Yeah. That's anti-nostalgia. That is, that's self-examination. That's what was refreshing about it. And I really got that. And and that's why it resonated with me. Because a lot of the people that I had relationships with in my teens and early 20s, as much as I love them, in retrospect, I see how unhealthy my relationships were with all of them. Yeah. 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 
yeah. all of them. I've retained maybe three or four of them. The rest I've <laughs> sadly had to allow to either slip away or bury. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, you know, just like you, I go to the gym and the, my, my first thing I go to is either the replacements or a tribe called quest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? And, and it, it, it's just a mile marker for what stirs my spirit to exert myself physically. And yeah. I'm thinking of high school dances and going to hardcore shows in, in the late eighties and early nineties. And then these are the things that were happening in my purview. Mm-hmm. 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 But like you, when I I didn't major in in psychology or sociology, I minored in social. I was uh I'd gone to school A to I thought I needed to go to school to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Uh not the case. Um, but it did give me the discipline. Uh and I wanted to fix myself. Um I kind of get the feeling that when you'd gone to school and, and, and kind of went toward that, that was probably kind of what was subconsciously happening for you too, uh, going towards the mental health end of the spectrum. Like we're always trying to heal ourselves, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's, that's true. I, I had, um, you know, I started working at record stores when I was 18 Mm -hmm. and um in columbus there's like there's this kind of like i don't know iconic record store use kids which is where i worked um it's still a store none of the other n none of the um owners or folks original owners own it anymore um but it was sort of like in Columbus, it was kind of, it was sort of the center of our world, like even maybe more so than the the clubs than you know, we had a couple clubs where everybody played like stashes where the replacements played and mm. Sun Ra played there and, you know, be happening and, um, you know, all the AMREP bands, Jesus Lizard. So that was like the spot. And then there was Bernie's, which was like kind of more punk and organic um and but then like in the middle was used kids like that so that's where everybody got that's where the tickets were sold that's that's where it was so that was very much a part of my life and it was my people i mean i found my people there my community coming from rural ohio and like oh my yeah this was like all i you know it was weird all i wanted to do when i was in high school was either I wanted to be either a music writer um, or work in a record store. Mm. Um, now, what's kind of weird is like, I don't like when I was a kid, when I was younger and I say a kid, cause I'm 54. Yeah. And I think that's any, any before the age of 30 is a kid to me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I devoured music books and I don't read them. Like I, I don't read them. So in, in a weird way, like I got to what I, I got to where I, what I wanted. Right. But, um, when I was 33, I, I kind of like had this, like I, I, there was a decision I had to make. Right. And so the decision was quit drinking, mm -hmm. um, continue drinking 
which was not going to turn out well or die. And um, the middle, the continued drinking with how things were going. Um, and I, and I wasn't going to lose a lot of things with, if I continued it because I was, I was fairly good at it in the sense, like I had never missed work. I had, you know, I was very much still a part of the scene, but internally I couldn't do it. So, you know, I had these two choices. So I was like, okay, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to try to quit drinking and it, here, here, I'll give it six months. And if it doesn't work, then I'll just kill myself. Right. Like, I mean, that was a pretty, in my mind, it was pretty logical. And even looking at it, I was like, yeah, you know, I can, yeah, that's fair. Because right? <laughs> when you live with that kind of depression, right, yeah. it, it afforded me a sliver of something. Um, and so, you know, when I became a, a social worker and therapist and um, I, I got sober, the, you know, back then, um, you went to treatment and then you went to, and then they sent you to AA. Yep. And that was it. And so that's what I did. Um, it, and it's interesting because I'm a huge harm reduction proponent and um, I do not even incorporate, well, I don't make it a focus that people go to support groups like that. Because yeah. for so many of the people I work with and the populations I work with, like, it's not going to work for them. And I have a whole, like, I don't, I, I don't want to like get too professory about that, but no, no. I mean, a, a, a big part of this podcast, uh, we do end up talking about recovery a lot. I'm in recovery. I'm an, I'm a heroin opioid addict. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no longer use obviously. Um, but you know, I got clean in AA too. There were, NA wasn't even around where I'm from. So I, get, yeah. I yeah. Get so, so it's, it's, it's interesting. So it worked for me. Mm -hmm. You know, in like the the prof so I I, this, I teach a course on this at at Ohio State, and so you know what what I what I say to people was like this is this is the structure that treatment came out of. This was the philosophy, and it really came out of the history of twelve step groups, because there's a lot of great things that are instilled in them: sense of community, sense of ident identification, um, even the process of going somewhere and just listening that it offers it offers so much of connection but then i say it's not treatment right. this is it's not treatment it is a support group and i think it can be dangerous for treatment centers to incorporate that into it because it leaves a lot of disenfranchised people out yeah. so you know it worked for me i was um 33 my wife was a professor at the university of florida I didn't have to work. They would say, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I probably went to 400 meetings that first year. Yeah. I went to every, you know, I went to treatment. I went to outpatient. I did all of that. And, you know, people in AA, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, yeah, you proved that it works for you. And I said, yeah, but I had the privilege to do, I had the privilege to do that. Mm-hmm. I I was allowed to sub, to submerge myself in that, um, but guess what? Like, probably eighty percent of the population doesn't have that luxury. Yeah, and we, and we have to be really careful to say what worked for me worked for me, 
And it's it's really and and you know I don't know your story, but like I never drank again. That is so rare. Yeah. Right. That that I never had a relapse. And somebody might say yet, and I'm like, okay, you know what? It's been 21 years. Yeah. So like that's, I don't that's think it's gonna happen. That's a mood point. <laughs> you know, I, like like it could, but that's not my like my yeah. concern is more about like depression and social anxiety yeah so um and like many people who got sober was one i got the courage to go back to college because i dropped out when i was 18 19 my sponsor at the time was supportive so i had to have a whole bunch of support to decide to do that um i found out i'm dyslexic um uh I found out that, it, and my dis, my dyslexia is 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 called mathematical disorder. I don't, mm-hmm. I can't process numbers. I got diagnosed with ADHD. Um, in there I was, thirty five, doing it, and I I loved AA. I loved sponsoring people. I started meetings. I I loved I loved the community. It really was helpful. Um, you know, and I I discovered a lot of other like music people and artists. Like, God, I thought these guys were dead. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd go to these meetings and be like, Oh my God, I thought that guy was dead. And he's like, No, I just I got sober and <laughs> I'm a teacher now, right? Like <laughs> so um so the goal was to really I wanted to learn how to do it in the best way possible um and so that's why I, that's so my intention when i went back to school was to be a drug and alcohol counselor hmm. fortunately the first job i could get when i got my associate's degree was working with the homeless who were duly diagnosed and all caught up in the like it was like criminal justice homeless um severe mental ish, mental health issues and substance abuse problems i was like and i was like god this is not really what i want to do i i don't want to work with people who have a mental illness i just want to work with with alcoholics i mean that was my thinking way back then it's like right. oh my god no, every substance abuser has a mental health issue like yeah. every single one right yep um and uh I loved, I, I loved it. I just was like, I was a case manager. I worked on a specialized team. My supervisor was also sober and he was super helpful. You know, and I was like, well, you know, we just need to get these homeless people into AA. And and he's like, Bela, listen, you and I, we would have, if they would have said, stand on your head, if you stand on your head for 20 minutes every day and you won't drink, we would have done it. Mm -hmm. Like it's different. And, and that was super helpful for me to sort of like change my perspective of what my personal experience is just, it works for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that, like I went and I got my undergraduate and then I got my master's degree and, and um, I was able, for, it's interesting now, I just do therapy now which is kind of crazy, but for um, uh, 2011 until last year, um, I was 
either a program manager or a clinical director or a clinical supervisor, did a lot of work like macro stuff with policy in town. Um, and what's weird is like now I just want to like talk to people and listen to them. Like I don't, it's, it's sort of like people say, well, you know, you're so, you were so good at that. Like, don't you want to, and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to like argue with like funders. I don't want to be, there's such a, because healthcare is so shitty in this country. Mm -hmm. It's all about funding and dollars, which I get. But if we just had fucking decent healthcare, we wouldn't have to worry about grants. We wouldn't have to worry about offering the least amount of services for the least amount of dollars to get that money. Um, we could just do treatment and we could help people without, you know, productivity and, um, you know, even with substance abuse treatment, it's, it's the only, it's the, even cancer when people are in remission with cancer, they still have yearly checkups to get it. We don't do that with substance abuse treatment. Yeah. We do urine treatment for three months and then go to AA. People are still saying that. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh my, this person was like raped as a child. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, cured. And that's, that's, that's the real, like the, the, that's the get of it all. Because as far as mental health professionals are concerned, largely, they turn you over to these groups that are ill-equipped to deal with the underlying issue of being, you know, molested as a child, having major depressive disorders, um, also like mental health issues and triggers of all sorts that lead to, uh, you know, using a substance to allow that person to get through the fucking day. And that's really yeah. what a lot of it comes down to. That's what yeah. it came down to yeah. for me. I was trying to see past this trauma and this, my, my uncomfortability in my own skin. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I didn't know how to talk to people until I was loaded. I, yeah. was, I wasn't any fun. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't this, this charming, uh, you know, man for all seasons that I thought I was when I was under the influence of something. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. my armor. It yeah. Was like learning yeah. how to get dressed again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That the sort of nakedness and self doubt, mm -hmm. the, the anxiety that, you know, you were probably born with and grew up in mm -hmm. and then you're becoming like Jesus Christ, like puberty just, it's like an explosion in every facet of your life. Mm. Um, and then while wow, you find these things that help you connect with other people, and then here you are 15, 20 years later, and you're like, what? I can't do this anymore? Mm -hmm. Like that. And, and you know, that's why like, I'm, I'm like harm reduction. Like, oh my God. Like, and, and it's, it's interesting because I've been, doing substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment since 2007. Um, and, and I ran the drug court in Columbus. Um, and I've only treated two people 
that entire time for marijuana misuse. Wow. That's it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's insane. And, and because, because one is, I, you know, we're, I, I'm always involved with programs like we're going to work on what you want to work on. And so, so many of my clients smoke weed or they, you know, they have medical cards and I'm not advocating marijuana. Like I fucking hated weed when I smoked it mm-hmm. and I don't like it now. But, um, my point is, is like, I would rather have people smoking weed eating edibles than drinking shooting dope because that idea of a drug is a drug is a drug is absurd. It is absurd. And, and, you know, and so something, and I, and I tell this to my students, I'm like, listen, if you're working with somebody and they're, and they have an anxiety disorder, they have PTSD or they're bipolar and they're telling you that they smoke weed every single day. And they want to quit drinking or they, you know, um, or they quit drinking and they still have a lot of anxiety. You have to believe them when they say the marijuana helps. Even though research says, even though you might have a light bulb in your head that says, no, it actually increases anxiety, right? Um, Because once you tell them that, you're going to lose them. Yep. Yep. And I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> My first, uh, m- m- the first counselor I'd gone to that was a, a licensed Pennsylvania state drug counselor. He tried to connect with me by saying he became addicted to marijuana in college. I, I, he lost me right there and I got up and walked out probably five minutes later because he was a, this football jock kind of guy, which you know, you, that's not going to resonate with me at all. Uh, and then he was trying to see eye to eye with this person that had been an IV drug user for a decade. And mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, you know, I, I was addicted to marijuana. I was like, you weren't addicted to fucking marijuana, dude. You were partying in college. Don't lie you were to partying me. Partying in college. Yeah. Yeah. Don't fucking lie to me because you don't wake up and f- like some people, I, I think probably do have a mental fixation on, on the consumption of marijuana, but they don't get sick. No, their skin no. doesn't crawl. No, they're I not know. dying from it. They're not hitting it unless it's laced with something mm-hmm. and dying. They're, they're not getting cirrhosis of the liver yeah. from it. I mean, are they, you know, not functioning like optimally functioning? Yeah, they're not you know, are, it has all other kind of healthcare risks. risks. And so, you know, it, it's sort of like when I talk to people who, cause it, cause I've, you know, I do lectures and at conferences and stuff. And I've had people come up to me, you know, hardcore, like AA traditional people are like, a drug is a drug is a drug. Like you should be challenging your clients on their marijuana use. And I'm like, you know, I challenge them on it when it's safe for me to do that. Yeah. Like when it gets to a point where a lot of the issues come up of like, you've, you've brought up your marijuana use a couple times, the last couple sessions, what are you thinking? Mm. 
then we do it. Um, and 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 I have that, but but the prime. I guess what I'm what I'm saying too is like the primary reason they they come in or they're seeking treatment is not for marijuana. Yeah, it's always secondary or even further down the list. So, you know, I think we, you know, in, in terms of, of treatment and that's, you know, like with Jenny, you know, in the book yeah. was, God, I wanted her so much to experience the joy and the hope that I got from treatment, you know, mm. spe specifically from AA. Like I really wanted that for her. Um, and I was really, really, really naive. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, I think in the book I have it, like she was like, it's sn snippy with me. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized like, oh my God, like she is extremely mentally ill. Like she has a psychotic disorder hmm. and, you know, so many different types of assaults you know, throughout her life. Um, yeah, of course she did drugs. Of course she drank. And, and yet the drinking, like she died a horrible death. I mean, it was, um, liver failure is, and you've probably seen people who, who died from it. Yeah. I have, I have an uncle that died of it. Yeah. It, it was when she died, when she was in the hospital and, and my daughter went with me like the night before she died. Um, she, you know, she was completely bloated and yellow. I mean, yellow. Um, like Charlie Brown shirt, right? And, um, but what happens is your blood doesn't clot with with liver failure it, it just quits clotting mm. and her face was so swollen her lips her lips were like an inch thick each one i mean it was puffed out um and they couldn't stop the bleeding with, with her lips and so she was just her mouth was completely swollen caked with blood and I, my daughter said, you know, daddy, what's, what's up with Jenny's lips? And I said, well, this is what happens. Like the, her, she's not clotting and she's retaining all this water. And she's like, oh my God, dad, like, I can't even imagine. I was like, well, that's what this looks like. That's what, that is what the end result of her life has brought her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so when I, it's, it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I often, I often thank whatever is out there that my agent orange killed my father before alcohol did, because mm -hmm. I'd seen what it had done to my uncle Tommy and the way he, it was, he lived in a trailer in the woods and he, we knew he was in liver failure. He knew he didn't mm -hmm. care. And eventually like within weeks of us knowing that he was, you know, in complete and utter decline, he was still drinking heavily and he started vomiting blood. Yeah. And 
he had been cooking something. It's the middle of winter in this trailer. He, when he fell over, he knocked the oven open. He cooked everything inside of the place, including himself. Oh my God. Yeah. Utter, utter horror. And, you know, it, it cured, it cured a part of my thinking that I was going to come to some sort of good end in the midst of my obsession with addiction. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, man, it, it, there's still that there, there was still that part of me well thereafter after burying my first girlfriend and, and all these people in small town, Pennsylvania, because we are just rife with opioid addiction here mm -hmm. that I was going to be the exception. And there's no exceptionalism in, no. In, no. in, in that arena. It ends the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a different death, but death nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm, Many suicide attempts on my part from yeah. ages 15 onward. Very, very depressive. Very, uh, I, I've been diagnosed with many things, none of which ever seemed to really get to the marrow of what I was dealing with. And it was really just trauma, I think, with me. Mm -hmm. cyclical, mm -hmm. cyclical depression to, you know, someone called me bipolar. I know I'm not bipolar. I grew up with a bipolar father. I know a bipolar. Mm -hmm looks like you know it was just dealing with trauma dealing with trauma until i faced it and i didn't face it until i was in my late 20s yeah i wasn't getting past anything i wasn't i wasn't getting sober mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? yeah that's i i like to i like you know you sharing that and i, I appreciate it um you know when i first saw my accounts but the first counselor i had as an adult um I just wanted my, it was, it was, um, I went because of, of the relationship, my relationship with my now ex-wife wasn't going well. And, um, that first, that first, I was 28, 29. I think my son is going to walk by. Where are you going? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. I do it all the time. Still, still a parent. <laughs> yep. Um, but she, she like made me read the 12 steps. Like, I was like, I'm not here for that. Like my, my problem is not drinking. My problem is she won't get off my back. Mm -hmm. Like that's my problem. Like how do I make her get off my back and not lose my shit over it? Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, eventually, and this was after, like, I had already had a very severe suicide attempt, which is in, I think it's in the second chapter. Of yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Just let it right out. Um, like, you didn't, that wasn't even a discussion. You know, it was, it was my drinking, so it really turned me off. And then, um, you know, when I, again, you know, that when, like when I got sober, I, I remember the day that brought me there because it was literally, and I write about that in the book, like I was going to go buy a gun. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, I could picture, I could taste the metal in my mouth. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was like, I knew like I was in this hotel in the middle of Florida. There was a, there was a fucking gun store next to the motel. 
I had destroyed the room and the thing that that kept me from doing it was oh god like the maid will find me mm-hmm. and i was like i couldn't do that to anybody empathy yeah yeah i i did not want to do it but you know it turns out like yeah i have depression and it's still um god it's kind of amazing i went um i probably went 2004 to 2013 without any suicidal ideations like zero and i was like oh my god like i've got this beat you know i still had i still had depression right but it wasn't like i didn't have that reoccurring thought um boy and it just came roaring back and um you know, sadly, it's I still have it. Yeah, like, yeah, and 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 it hits me, and and that it's like like when people say, you know, when people commit suicide, they they say, oh, they were so selfish. They were. Yeah, they, that's that's they, not the fucking case at all. Yeah, no, no, and it's like ah, like no, that's not it. It has nothing to do with that. And and I was um, um, talking to my girlfriend about about it and she's like you know like i just wonder like what what like when you when you are depressed and i was like one i'm really open about it like i let people know i let my kids know about it like not daddy's depressed he's gonna sleep like i'm just like hey this is what this looks like for me but i also tell people i'm close to is like well if you if you see that i'm irritable and and also um if if i if if I buy a bunch of records, like I'm depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> they just show up in the mail. They just show up in the mail and it's, it's like, I'm in a blackout. Yeah. You're in a fugue state. You're like, order, <laughs> order, order, order. That's reissued. Order that too. Okay. I feel better. And I got a new flannel on top of it. <laughs> yes. you know, and, and it's, it's depression spending. I, I, I'm guilty of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, like, it's like she's like, well, you know, does it go away? And I was like, you know, it it goes away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stay away. And I'm like, you know, when it hits me, like the 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 suicidal ideation usually hits me when I'm walking, which I love to do. It's usually when I'm walking with my dog at night, and I'm either listening to music or, or a podcast. And she said, oh, then well, maybe you shouldn't do that. And I was like, no, it's when I'm isolated. Isolation does it. And my mind just goes there. And I said, but here's the thing. It never stays longer than like 10 minutes. And I, I, and I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm skilled enough, but I just, I can say, there it is. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily have to be afraid of it. Just there it is. That's that acceptance of, fuck, I'm 54. Do I think it's going to go away again? Most likely not. (laughs) (laughs) I just had one two days ago. No, no, I'm sorry. Yesterday. Yeah. Um, And it was stress induced. And, you know, I'd done something uh, not bad, but just I hadn't 
considered my wife's feelings and she was very angry with me. And I had a, a, a few other extenuating circumstances that were not life-threatening. We're not going to end my marriage, my career, anything. But my first thought was, when I get out of here today, I'm driving off the fucking bridge on the highway. And my trick is, I, I, I type it into the notes on my iPhone. I type in, I'm going to drive off the fucking bridge on my way home today. And I give it five minutes, and I look back at it and see how ridiculous yeah. that reaction to that minuscule problem is. And, and think to myself, I'm never going to see my little boy again. I'm never going to see my wife and daughter, my mother, who's thankfully still with us, uh, my brothers and sisters, who there's an awful lot of them. I'm the oldest of six. You know, I, oh, love, no. I, I love these people. I want them to see me. I want to see them. I want to be in their presence because it, I just I have a deep love for these humans. I'll never see them again. Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous. Yeah, because of this. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 like, and I don't know if this is like for you, you know, in your relationships, but you know, getting you know getting a message, oh, honey, I don't think you should come over tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm it's over. Sure. Yeah, yeah, like oh, this she's, is the end of the relationship. She's leaving me. She's leaving yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I've been with this woman for ten years, and I can tell you with a great degree of certainty that there have been nights where she just wasn't feeling well and we weren't living together yet. And she was just like, let's just, I'm just going to stay home this weekend. And I'm like, it's me. It's me. It's something I did. She's leaving me. She's found someone else. And yeah. Then yeah. Oh, you just, you know, stay, stay home with Bruno and I'll see you Monday or I'll see you. It, that just happened today. And I'm like, <laughs> And it's, 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 you know, if, if, if you're standing outside yourself, it's not a problem. It's, no, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Like I should be with my son who needs me here. Yeah. And, and you should be with your kids who need you there. And you're going out to dinner with your friends and, and, you know, my stepdad is dying. I should go see him. But boy, you're saying Monday? What the fuck? Like Monday? <laughs> Do you know how what far Monday is I mean, where are my knives? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's my, you just explained my mind. Yeah. And yeah. you know, from the edge, like I always, there's an overarching theme to my show. I don't pre-prepare questions, but I always have the same question that I ask every person who comes on. And that question is, what is it that is your greatest existential fear what do you dread i mean and for me it all breaks down to watching nova on pbs when i was a small child and they were talking about how on outside of the the populated universe as far as like celestial bodies are concerned mm -hmm. there is a vast blackness a vacuum of cold empty nothingness mm -hmm. and that as a four or five year old kid, which my kid, my kid's all about that age and he doesn't think about this stuff that consumed me to the point where it is still like, if I close my eyes, I could picture it. I, and it, it, the terror that it instills in my very soul. Yeah. And I have, I will never know it. I will never see it. Yeah. I will never have occasion to visit it or to look upon it. <laughs> Why is this 
replaying in my head as as if it were a certainty. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's depression, my brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that is the metaphor for the darkness that that we have. Mm -hmm. That is, it, it, that's something I, I I work with my clients a lot. Um, you know, I, I say. And, and like, I don't tell them, like, I have the same thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, unless they, they listen to this, like, no, that I have that, that, that same shit you're doing. That's me. Yeah. But it's, it's like, so I use this metaphor of, of like when you're walking in, in, into the ocean or a lake um, and you're walking and you're kind of nervous, but you know, it's fun. You're splashing around. There's other people around. And the water's a little cold, but it's it's okay. And then you step off, and there's a drop off, and you you're no longer touching the ocean floor, mm. and you panic, and the water gets cold. It, it's a different level of coldness, and you can't touch the bottom, and you're scared, and you start floundering, right? Like you start fuck, I'm going to die. Like, oh, I can feel the undertow. And for many people, like, and, and I tell them, I'm like, all you have to do is turn around. And you can remember, you, you know how to swim. But that darkness is there. That cold water is when you have depression and trauma. That is always part of you. That dark, dark, cold water. And and then what happens is like if I get that phone call or that text message of like don't come over until Monday, you know, that's where emotionally I go. Yeah. So my initial reaction is fear of panic. I'm mm -hmm. going to be alone. I'm not worthy. Um all that underlying imposter syndrome of being unlovable of of um as my psychologist tells me it's like annihilation yeah what you are feeling is annihilation and you're you're getting pulled into it and um you know so i have to remind myself i know how to swim mm -hmm. and guess what it's okay to wade in that coolness not to stay in it not to let it consume you, but you have to recognize it, that it's there. Because what you described, yeah, that's it. It's that darkness of, yeah. of what it is in that very terrible feeling of being alone and awkward in the aloneness of like not knowing what to do with it. Um, but where yeah, does the I, obsession with the Stygian come from though? Because someone like myself for as much as those feelings of that dread terrifies me, I'm still, you know, peering into the darkness and it, I know ultimately it's going to look back at me, you know, as the old adage says, but uh, there's still that part of me that a very big part of me that can't help, but not only look, but almost want to ingratiate myself in it. Um, I, I think it might just be, you know, uh, comfort almost. I feel, yeah, well, I feel comfortable in it. Yeah. I, well, because we don't trust the safety. Yeah. 
That's that that makes sense. We don't trust the safety. We don't trust the stability, and it is such a an an unconscious, pre-conscious emotion because most of us weren't given that stability as a child, yeah, um, or or throughout our lives that it wasn't there. So when we get it, we don't trust it. And we may, you know, engage in sort of self-sabotage behaviors, which, you know, substance abuse, sex, money, um, it's, it's interesting is that my, because, like, I make way more money than I've ever made in my entire life. Like, I'm not wealthy. I'm, I mean, I'm, I live in an $800 place, you know, um, but for the amount of money I make, like I should not be living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, and he, my, my therapist actually said, you know, he said, I'm like, you know, Mark, I, I, I'm, I, I can't like, I've come all this way and do all this stuff. And I was like, I can't fucking save money. And he said, money is the last is the final frontier for wholeness. Is, and he basically said, you spend money, you mismanage your money to prove to you, to prove to yourself you're not worthy of financial stability. And I was, I was literally like, <laughs> That's, I did exactly what you were doing now. <laughs> I'm doing that exactly. <laughs> You were looking at a monument of that behind me. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I I apprised my existing collection, and it is legitimately worth uh, about one point two five million dollars. Oh my god, you're kidding me! Wow, I, I have seven thousand four hundred records between LPs and seven inches. I have some jazz pieces that are worth a small fortune. I have like some Revelation Records releases that are like very, very rare. One of which is more than likely when I sell it, going to put my son Kanan through college. And, wow. you know, there's what does it do? Like, I love to listen to it, but what does that mean when I need to buy groceries? Yeah, I, I need to, you know, pay the mortgage. So I, I have been slowly, really backing off of 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 purchasing. It's hard more, though, isn't but it? It's so hard because I love so many bands and I love so much music, and it was my was is and always will be my solace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I I listen to a lot of classical music, mm -hmm. and I actually mostly listen to classical and i it's weird i probably have 500 records downstairs that are classical records like in my basement i'm like okay i'm not gonna listen like i bought all these i'm not gonna listen to these like i have a bunch up here too but the thing about classical records is they actually the sides are only about 15 minutes long mm -hmm. and so when i listen to classical i'm like like i'm not like a massive classical aficionado like i just love listening to it yeah. uh but i like I, I mostly listen to it on cds i actually buy new classical cds 
um, because I can put it on and I can work and it's on for an hour, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll just show you like what I did this in my, one of my depressive states, I, um, <clears throat> I bought these two things, this Hillary Hahn box set. She's a violinist and yeah. I bought this Steve Reich. Oh God. I have that. I have that. This? I have that. Did you just get it? <laughs> You just got it. <laughs> Fucking hell. With the, with this signed <laughs> print? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. I had to get the whole thing. I'm not going to half-ass it, man. I'm not just going to. No, it is gorgeous. It's and it beautiful. sounds great. It's fantastic. It's it fantastic. It sounds so good. And I love her. Hillary is fantastic. She's great. She is amazing. And I, and okay. So I, I get him. I'm like, you know, it's like, what, this was like $80. Yeah. Which is not bad for what it is to be. Quite it's honest. not bad. Right. And they're beautiful. But then I open them up. And so I have, a, uh, I have one of those turntables that if you want to play a 45, you have to change the belt. Like yeah. I hate it. Like yeah. I'm like, I should just saw my seven inches because I'm never going to play them. Because it's too much fucking work. Yeah. And so I open these up and I'm like, oh my God, they're on 45. <laughs> Listen, uh, you got to get a different turntable because things at 45 RPM sound better. They sound better. better. They do sound better. And it sounds great. I mean, it does. But here's the thing too. is like I work at home. I don't want to change it. Yeah. I Does that it. make sense? Like I, I get it. I get it. But I've been listening to both of those. Like the the Hillary Hahn is nice too, because like with the box, you get the CD with it too. Yeah. But man, it sounds like it's just sounds so good on that 45. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. It's it yeah. Yeah, sound like you're in the room. But yeah. you know, like there's this there's this point where the completism starts to come into play i own all right the cure wish right do yeah. you know how many times over i own that fucking record well because you probably had it on CDs. cd no i had an original vinyl of it oh really from when it came out i was in high school when that came out like i was at the tail end of high school when that came out i, I had the vinyl then why do i need it again because it's remastered, it's repackaged, it's prettier, it's better. I don't have it. I feel incomplete. I have to have it or I won't feel complete. I better buy it or I'm not going to feel complete. Well, why do I need to feel complete? Yeah. I'm complete. Because you're going to get it. <laughs> I'm okay already. You know, and I think that's a lot of what, what, what they're doing to people like us. I, oh, yeah. I, I think this is directly marketed at us because yeah. we're the age group that has money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're gainfully employed. We are the new middle-aged. Yeah. Why do I have to buy every Neil Young reissue as the box? I've had most of those since, like, my I have my dad's. You know, like, how many times do I have to own after the gold rush? Yeah, yeah. You know, I have yeah. Transformer in three different formats. Like... <laughs> 
Why? It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Or not Transformer. That's Lou Reed. Trans. trans and, trans. You're trans. That's trans. Yeah. The album everybody makes fun of me for liking. Um, but no, it's a, that's a, a, the live versions of that tour mm -hmm. is so good. I know. I know. It is so good. There's a there, there's a part of me that will always have to own every like live Who record too. Like it's just me. I I I, I got to buy them. I have to have them. It was my first concert was the the Who with the Clash opening at Shea Stadium. Oh yeah, I remember that. I mean, I wasn't there, but I do remember that. That was like. God, what was that like? Seventy nine, seventy eight. That was eighty. That was eighty. No, no, because that was Combat Rock. Yeah, that was eighty one going into eighty. It was, it was the Combat Rock tour, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Bo Diddley opened. It was wow. Bo Diddley, The Clash, and The Who? And you know, I just The Who live even then, like well after their prime, well after the the complete lineup. No Keith Moon, still awesome. And, you know. and yeah, that's that emotional stamp. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see Joe Strummer a half a dozen times since then, but that was the, you know, I, I lost my virginity. I became a punk. <laughs> I didn't even know what punk was. But, but yeah, you knew you were, whatever that is, that's, that's what I am. That's me. You know, yeah. that, that yeah. moment of recognition. Uh, but it's it's also it's it's a big part of depression, having to have this complete discography, this this like these these hallmarks of of basically consumerism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not it's not as punk as I think it is in my head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually the opposite. I should be out there stealing it. <laughs> yeah. I should be pirating it online. That's yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's the yeah. most fun thing you could do, probably. But like you said with the classical thing too, if I if I find something I love, I, I go headlong into it. Like mm -hmm. how many yeah. times I own more records that were written by Rachmaninoff than I do by the Rolling Stones. And I love the fucking stones. Yeah. You know, especially like Well, I'm so glad to hear that that you really like classical because there's not too many of us out there in the world. Jazz and classical, we, I have a very deep affinity for. Especially the darker ones, like like Rachmaninoff, like like oh, so yeah, I I should show you this. Let me take you to a little tour right here. I don't know if you can let me turn on the light here. See my no, that's not on here. Oh my god, my happy light on here. Well, nothing's on, but I don't know if you can see that. Kinda. So that is a rock mon and oh. That is a Billy Childish print. Oh wow! Oh wow! Oh. <laughs> There's. That's a I argue with everyone. Like people, people like name check their favorite uh, classical uh, artists, uh, and and to me, it always goes back to Rachmaninoff because he, it was so inherently dark. Yeah, so utterly depressed. I mean, more than more than just about anyone. Even like Mozart's Requiem, he he wrote his own Requiem. Yeah, how yeah. sad is that? 
not as sad as Rachmaninoff, not in my opinion. You know, and I even like. Well, it's it's funny because that the the Mozart Requiem is the only Mozart piece I really like. I I own about no less than sixteen different versions of it. Oh my god, I I have a a bunch, and um, it is like it's one of it's probably one of my five favorite pieces of music which is weird because i don't really like anything else by him mm-hmm. it's too like too flowery too too pretty but god yeah. damn that is and then the rock vespers i fucking like ah oh. that there's something absolutely resplendent about the utter misery and darkness of his music <laughs> i mean People, I also like Wagner a whole lot, and I get mm. fla- I get flack for that because of, you know, the fact that Nazi Germany loved him yeah. so much, and he was nothing if not a divisive character in his own right. But the the man could he could write. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> I have um, I've got just a beautiful ring cycle. Like I have, a, you can't see it, but my it's I think it's Schulte's. Uh, ring cycle it's so good it mm-hmm. sounds like god the beginning of that cycle that whole um the first movement at the beginning is is what's like it's like five minutes of just like this cra- and i'm like oh my god this sounds like 20th century it's noise yeah yeah it's, it's ambient so noise great. yeah yeah do you um do you know do you know Don Howen? Do yeah. you know Don? Yeah. Do you ever listen to his classical show? Yeah. Oh my god, it's so good. He, talk talk about dark. And if I'm not mistaken, he played uh the, the I forget the gentleman's name now. He is the basically the godfather. He's an Italian, the godfather of noise music. Uh, the gentleman's name escapes me, but he he made what is considered classical music with classical instruments, but made noise like mm-hmm. like Marsbow level noise. Yeah, yeah. And he played it. He played an hour of it, and I was just it took my breath away that not that he included it. I, I listen to Don's show a lot when I'm going to bed. I just put it on. I put it on low. Um, and he's he's a he's a really good friend of mine, and it was interesting though because he came into classical music really late, um, and he actually his dad was was sick and and he called me up and he said, "Bail, I'm going to be in Columbus. I need to get rid of my dad's classical CDs. Do you want some?" And I was like, "Oh." Oh yeah, <laughs> and he's like, because you're the only guy I know that likes classical music, and I was like, so um, he was living in in um, North Carolina then, and I didn't hear from him. And then, like six months later, he's like, "Hey, I'm in town. You know, you want to get a coffee?" And I was like, "Yeah." And then he wouldn't be like, "Hey, what about those classical?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's, where's your dead dad's shit, bro? <laughs> um, and uh, and so we, he came over for coffee, and he's like, oh, you're probably wondering about like my dad's classical CDs. And I was like, yeah, I was. And he goes, well, uh, I took some home, and I wanted to listen to some, and I love it. 
and he's like, I started this show and, um, you know, and he'll say, like, speaking of darkness, he's like, this is the music that saved my life. And um, this is, so, like, to sort of tie it all together, too, is he, I talked about my stepdad, and, you know, he's, he's, like, dying. He's got a couple months left. And how important music was for him, you know. And he saw the Velvet Underground, right? Yeah. And he, he, you know, music was so important to him. And a couple of years ago, I was visiting, you know, him and my mom, and and he said, Bela, do you know this guy Don Howland?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, he's a good friend of mine." He goes, "Yeah, his name sounds familiar." He goes, "I've been listening to his classical show," and he's like, "I never cared about classical music before," and they be they've become like pen pals, right? <laughs> And and it's interesting because Steve, my stepfather, and I would like bond over you know music, like, but it was like you know again like Neil Young or The Clash or Dylan or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now we talk about you know because I I said oh Steve I got this Hillary Hahn he goes oh God I love her she does this she's a big champion of Silvestri the, the yeah. Ukrainian composer he's like yeah she is terrific he get, and he goes yeah don plays her all the time so it's it's so weird how it it's the connection right it's, it's like it's crazy that you brought up Silvestri too because like talk about accomplished everywhere like film you like you can't you kind of can't escape it you yeah. kind of can't escape it and there's always, I think there's always going to be a place for classical music because that form has withstood centuries. Yeah. There are pieces that I still listen to that existed 300 years ago almost. Yeah. Like the, the Pergolesi Stabit Mater. Yeah. Oh my God. I go back to that all. It's like Mozart's Requiem. It's like, I hear those things and I just like, they do bring me to tears. They literally, at, after I got my divorce, right after I got my divorce, I took my son to see Mozart's Requiem. And uh, I bawled the entire time. And he was like, dad, I mean, he was like, I don't know. He was like 10 then nine or ten and he's like dad it's kind of embarrassing i was like yeah. i have that i have that attachment to jazz too i really do there's just uh and this is entry level stuff i mean i shouldn't even be proud that i champion this record because it is for hard bop jazz, it is the entry level record. It is it is like pedestrian. I don't care. It's an all star tour de force, and that would be Miles Davis is kind of blue because you mm -hmm. have John Coltrane yeah. and Cannonball Adderley. Everybody's on. They're all on this record, and they didn't write it. They picked them. Miles picked a mode. We're playing mm -hmm. in this key, this beat, go. Mm -hmm. And it be, it is just a juggernaut of of, yeah. of a piece of music. I don't think that 
I don't think things like this happen anymore. As much as I love music, as much as I love punk rock and, 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 and many styles of music, like I love Kendrick Lamar, but mm -hmm. this stuff is not happening at this level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's and astounding. I think that goes back to, you know, the beginning, like when we were talking of, of connection, how do people connect? Yeah. And, how i mean there's something very different than sitting down with coffee or even beer or whatever it is and talking and conversing with people um or in at that in that moment too of like putting on a record and listening to it where everybody has to be absorbed in it there's no phones there's no nothing and you're connecting because that's where the creativity sparks once you have that right and you're opening up and sharing ideas. So even in the process of making records now, fuck, people are making, my, my friend Ryan, um, who plays drums for a ton of different people, like his side gig is he provides beats for people. <laughs> or somebody needs a drum fill and he records it and sends it to them. Yeah. And yeah, it's great because he, he makes a living that way. But, you know, if you asked him, like, Ryan, what is your favorite thing? It's like, oh, when he, he plays drums for Riley Walker. Yeah. It's like, oh, when, when I'm playing with Riley and this is what we're doing and we go off, he's like, that's when it's magic. Because they're as a unit, but we don't have that. You know, when, when, I, when I meet my daughter, you know, she's on her phone. I'm like, honey, let me take you out for lunch. And she's, she's on her phone or... And I get it. Like, I, I think f for me, I have to be very intentional with the time I'm going to spend. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was funny the, the other night, my, my girlfriend, because um, I play a game, I play a stupid game on, on my phone, right? And she said, um, she came in, in, into the, to the living room and I, I was having a really bad day and she's like oh you're on your phone and i remember i was like but actually what i was doing i was looking up some obscure <coughs> composer some finnish composer i can't his name is razanafkov or something like that and and um because i because i can't see worth a shit like you right yeah. Like I'm like I hold it up here and I'm yeah. like I'm I'm trying to find this piece of music. God damn it! <laughs> Did it make me feel like I'm with the world? <laughs> Nine times out of ten, if I'm on my phone and I'm 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 intent on it, I'm looking up some really obscure horror film or a novel or music, and and my wife will just walk by and she's like, "Are you gonna eat that?" <laughs> yeah. because that's where i'm at I'm like yeah yeah it's just uh I, I thankfully i am not my daughter's age where everything as far as like my personal life is broadcast via this but man i'm getting damn close yeah. podcasting and still playing in a band at my age it's 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 a tool that i can't escape but well, I think it's great that you do it. Like, yeah, I have to. If I, I feel like if I'm not doing 
things of this nature, uh, being creative, I'll probably go to a much darker place than I normally yeah. would. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta be, we gotta be out there doing it right. Uh, that when, the, when your book came out, uh, it came out on Don Giovanni, mm -hmm. you know, th that struck me as well because that, that's a, that's a label that is still 1 million percent baseline punk rock in the purest form yeah yeah still politically one million percent on the level yeah uh, you know socially conscious every band that comes out on there is vetted it's all on yeah. the level you couldn't have chosen a better route you know what i mean like it's bulletproof are there are there labels that care that much anymore? I always wonder, like, you know, I, I still love stuff that comes out on like Revelation or even even Epitaph mm -hmm. now and again, mm -hmm. not not much, but now and again. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't th I, I don't know who's really doing it like that anymore. There's you, I would think there would be some young guys out there who are really carrying that. Flag. Yeah, well, I think Joe's aesthetic is like. It's pure. It's respectful. He puts out things that are important. Mm -hmm. Like he puts out like you know he's not making a dime off some of these things, but it's important to get it out there. Um, you know, it's it's risky. It's dangerous. It takes courage to invest in that. You know, as somebody who has a record label, like you know. It and not only that, it's a lot of fucking hard work. Yeah. And you know, he's a professor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's 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 yeah, it's it's um I mean I was obviously so grateful that he he was like, Let's do this book. Um and I resisted it for, for several years. I um you know, I, I have this blog, and so much of the book comes from that. Well, yeah. And the first time I, I met him was at, at um, it was at like a, it was a, a uh, an event here in town that um, a publisher here put on two dollar radio, and uh, um, it, I just met Joe, and I mean, I've, obviously, I knew Don Giovanni, and he was like, "Hey, I really like your blog." Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, oh, well, thank you. Like, I mean, I wasn't thinking that. And he's like, if you ever want to do a book, let's talk. I, I, and I was like, ah, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I remember reading your blog. Like, I was probably uh, 20s. Yeah, yeah. You know what I, I mean? mean, it's been around for a while, and and and. But part of it too is, um, you know, my resistance. You know, realizing, and this was like took the book to come out was. There's this, you know. So I'm I'm totally DIY, like, and you know, people, you know, my my girlfriend is a writer, 
Um, and other people say, God, you just like put it out there. Like you, you're the second chapter is your suicide attempt. And the first chapter is a blow job. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and they're, they're like, God, you're, you're brave. And I'm like, well, actually I just, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like I'm comfortable enough. Like I don't care that much. Like, um, but what I do care about is being rejected. Like, I don't care if people don't like it or not. Like, I really don't. But the fear is, God, if we do this as a book and nobody cares. Yeah. Because there's a whole other set of commitment with a book or a record of something tangible than just saying, this is how it is. I'm doing this unedited thing I wrote in an afternoon up on the internet, right? Take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, there's something brave, but also very cowardly in that. Um, and so I don't think I was at a point where I was ready emotionally to commit to a book. Um, I mean, and it was like, God, it does seem like a lot of work. Like what I've, what I'm doing is there's no commitment. I write whenever I want to write. I write whatever I want, I want to write about. Uh, I don't have to get anybody's opinion on anything. Because it's not commodified. Because it's not commodified. But it made me, that process made me a better writer. I mean, I think, and I actually, the best writing in the book are things as the book was coming together um, Lisa Carver edited, edited it and she would say, you need to write this. This is really unanswered here and you need to write this. Um, and like, so when I do readings for the book, there's a couple things I always read and, and I find myself a lot going to those either completely rewrites of something or things that I wrote specifically because of her. And, and not to like toot my own horn, but sometimes, like, I just did a reading for Columbus Public Library, and I, I read this thing, and I, I literally, I wanted to go, that's, I fucking wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, having followed, you know, your blog for as long as I did, I think I mentioned that to you before, I've been, I've been following your writing for a very long time. I think what really struck me about the book was not necessarily the the non-linear aspect of it which I, I appreciated because it even though it jumps around as far as uh time periods it follows a, a an emotional through line mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you're taking a trip through a psyche and you know we don't remember things chronologically we remember feelings and yeah that, that 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 rabbit hole is completely separate from a calendar you know what i mean that's yeah. that's i think what was really uh prescient about it was that fact that well, thank you yeah that was like, the intention <laughs> you know like you're getting you're getting an unfiltered shot of of, of human experience the way it was meant to be felt you know yeah 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 and that, that's the, that's the the real thrust of of the book that and this kind of like doomed 
sort of romance uh, and and the love affair with music mm-hmm. that that is like repeated and and just kind of reverberates throughout the entire thing. <laughs> It it's just music and love and, and 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 tragedy, and that's everybody's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm writing a book now on my mom, and um, well, your mom was a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, she really was. I, and and you know, a lot of things because she she died last year, and there was just a lot of things that sort of came out with her. A lot of family secrets, you know, um, and so I, I'm, I don't know, I've got like 40,000 words that I've written, um, and it's, a lot of it is, is you know, I, I, I think about, you know, as a kid who grew up somewhat chaotically, and there was abandonment and trauma and those sorts of things, but also, like, the things that my mom lived through um and the things that she had to do a lot of the decisions she was sort of forced to make because you know she didn't go to college until her 30s you know um she had my sister when she was 18 19 years old so um and she was a she was a bohemian she was a rebel she was um Right after she graduated high school, she moved to New York City to live with some theater guy. Mm-hmm. Um, like crazy, right? So, um, you know, you grow up in that as, as we grow up, like that's our parent, right? And then having the sort of stereotypical ideas of, of what a parent should be. Um, and then having that rebellion and, and not understanding, but like, you know, as she was dying and like family secrets sort of came out and, you know, you know, she, I, I got her depression. Like she, that's something she gave me. Yeah. Um, so I've been writing that and, and really looking at, you know, I think it goes back to the connection and loss of, of connection. Um, it's fucking dark. Like, like it is, it is really dark, and and I'm not. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, um, they said, "Well, what's your mom going to think of it?" They didn't know my mom was dead. Mm. They were like, and they were just like, "What are you writing?" I was like, "This is what I'm writing about." Like, there's some pretty like heaty stuff in this. You know, just the fact that what women have to live through, and especially of of other generations, of um, making a lot of choices that they, because that was it, that was their option. Yeah. Um, and, um, you, you weren't allowed to talk about it. I mean, you could not talk about those choices you had to make or what, what you suffered. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and, so, and so I said, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. Like, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen with it, but, but, and they said, well, what's she going to think? And I'm like, it doesn't really matter. I'm like, how can you say that? You're writing about your mom's life. And I said, well, she's dead. <laughs> she's not going to. She's not going to. She's dead. Yeah. You know? What I have to be mindful of is like, what are my siblings going to think? Yeah. But I think ultimately, 
you know, the scant things I know about your mother, I, I gleaned from the book. And in my opinion, a person of that mindset probably lived loud and proud and wouldn't, oh, yeah. wouldn't care. Yeah. No, I, I, and, and I think she said she, un, you know, uncovered some of the secrets before she died. Um, I mean, it wasn't easy for her, but because I think she, she wanted us to know this is what her life is. This is what life is. And we don't have to run away from it, you know? And she was somebody who ran away from a lot of things, mm -hmm. you know, but in a weird way, like for me, I try not to do that. Like I try to run towards. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's, that's an important thing because a lot of learned behaviors, you yeah. know, they're terrible habits that we pick up from our parents. Like, you know, addiction, for example, is a big one for me. My, I'm the son of an alcoholic. There's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, my coping mechanisms are these learned bad habits. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Also, I, the dichotomy of that is my dad was very bad at some very fundamental things, but he was also terribly good at some fundamental things. Mm -hmm. he was very mm -hmm. loving, very affectionate, but he's also very violent and mm -hmm. very like dark hearted. It, yeah. it, it's, you know, we, we forget that our parents are just people. Yeah. And yeah as their children it's difficult to forgive them that until we become mm -hmm. much older and more world wary yeah yeah but ultimately i see now dude tried his best and he loved yep. me and i love him and he fucked me up and that's what parents do to kids <laughs> yeah and, and we get to a place where uh we're okay <laughs> right yeah yeah, so I, I think ultimately being parents ourselves now in the wake of that, we just try to do that little bit better so that they they don't screw their kids up as much as we got screwed up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just what it is. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, I got to go to bed soon. Go to bed. Listen. <laughs> is, is that okay? That's more than okay. This I, has been awesome. I have loved this conversation. We didn't, we didn't fall into any, anything preordained. It just, it, it happened organically and, and beautifully. And I thank you for it. I think. Oh no, thank you. I'd love, I, I'd love to just hang out and talk. I would too, actually, because we we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really do. And and I, thank you so much again for the kind words about the book and music. I mean, Jesus Christ, we could probably talk music forever, and it, hopefully someday we'll be able to listen to some together. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. So don't. And so, don't, where are you at? Where are you, are you in Pennsylvania still? The Scranton area, yes. Oh yeah, is yeah. that where you grew up too? Yeah, sadly. <laughs> But I'm here because my mom's here, so that's what it is. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, well, maybe next time I drive to New York, I'll I'll drive drive. Through. So it, it's it's northeast of Harrisburg. Uh, northeast of Harrisburg. Yes, I'm I'm. Gosh, like two hours south of New York and two hours north of Philadelphia. 
So near, is it near, kind of near Lehigh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very, very similar location. Well, I, I'm supposed to go out there in um, um, Memorial Day weekend. So I might actually try to do a reading in Philly, but maybe stop by and get a cup of coffee or something. That would be heavy. That would be very heavy. Don't don't lose my contact info. No, I won't. I won't. Okay. Have a great night. You as well. Okay. Okay. Bye, Good night. Thanks. Bye bye. And there you have it, folks. As you just heard, Bela and I will be spending a bit more time together, and I think that's only right. Um, boy, was this this was an emotional little episode, wasn't it? Bela's kind of incredible. Um, I urge you to go out and get a copy of his book. Um, it really is, uh, you know, a, a, a light in a darkened corner of a part of my youth that I think most of you would find really interesting. Um, although I didn't live his story, it is vastly similar to mine. With that being said, he's been Bella. I've been Peter. You've been beautiful. And this has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. Take care of yourselves, everyone. And have a great night.